All right. Good morning, Shore. Thank you for tuning in. If you have a Bible, please open it to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We're looking at verses 2 to 16. Uh, before we you know, get into our passage, let me remind us uh, of some background so that when you know, we hear it read, we go, oh yeah, man, I remember that. So Paul, who wrote this letter, he had earlier to this church in Corinth, he, he had given them a bunch of uh, issues he needed to address. He had to correct them on inconsistencies in their lives, uh, you know, sins they were more managing rather than repenting. They were being, as we saw last week, almost too involved in the culture, in their idols. Uh, one in particular, there was someone deep in sexual sin. He had to address all of that. So like a you know, a doctor cutting out cancer. Uh, he was laser focused with them, very passionate for their character, passionate for their holiness and their beauty. And, um, and at the beginning, they did not receive correction uh, really, really well. If you've ever given correction, uh, you'll know that it's not always received the way you meant it to be received. In fact, he had to, as we've seen in the beginning of this letter, he had to defend himself quite a bit, as humbly as possible, but he had to address accusations thrown at him, misunderstandings thrown at him, and so this morning, uh, we get a glimpse of what I say uh, is the most mature words you'll hear in Scripture, the most mature words on this topic of receiving correction and giving correction. So uh, that's where we're going. So with that kind of mindset now, as you hear the text read, uh, you'll go, oh yeah, that, you know, that sits well. I get it now. So uh, you know what? We are, as you can tell, not in person. And so until we're in person, we're going back to a special guest reader. So with no further ado, Shelly. Hello, Short Church. Today, the scripture reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 to 16. Paul's joy. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong. 
nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, we also, so also, our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Thank you, Shelley. Uh, why don't we open in a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll get into that passage. So, Father, just we thank you for your deep, deep love for us. Just think of the apostolic prayer for, for the church in Ephesus, that, that we would comprehend the heights and the depths of the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And I, I pray as we talk about a, a touchy issue like correction, receiving correction, would you, would you like you did last week around holiness, make that a sweet, embraced uh, part of the life of this church. And God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's living and active, that it, that it, is, it is for us today. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just use my gifts and I pray you would help me uh, Lord, just surrender this to you in a way where I'm not in control of how people hear it, that it's you who lights up your word. And so, Lord, would you just anoint me with your, just your healing touch? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, to help guide where we're going, uh, I, just, I, I first just want to make a few comments on Paul's inner life and his view of God. I think you can't read this passage and without going, how does he do that? Uh, so I want to do that first. The second thing I want to do is, is I want to look at correcting is a necessary love. I mean, you can't see um, how loving this is until you look at it through that lens. So that's number two. And number three, how do we receive correction and truly change? So that's where we're going to go in this passage to just guide our time. Uh, so first, look, look with me at the beginning of verse 2. We're going to look at inward fruit, so the inner life of Paul, the fruit that's growing in him, and a God who comforts. So what does he know about God? So, so here's how he begins. Uh, make room in your hearts for us. Let me just say, sometimes that just needs to be spoken. He has to speak it. That thought has to come in people's minds. And I point that out because this is the only verb in our passage, the, the word uh, uh, room, make room. Uh, it means to warm up emotionally, to become more friendly or caring, uh, to, to make habitable space for someone uh, in, in someone's heart. So he's, he has to say this. Sometimes you need to say this. To those in your community group, sometimes you need to say that to your friends. Sometimes you need to say, make room in your heart for us. Now listen where he's coming from. He says this, we have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn, you know, judge you. For I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. 
Okay, when I read that, I was blown away by his responses, his reflex, his inner life. I was just, I, I stopped. I remember just reading it, getting ready to study, and I just began to think how. He, he says, I have great faith in you. I'm very proud of you. I'm very happy. Even with all our troubles, my joy has no limit. Okay, how? How is it that you have this love? I mean, seriously, so many people in the church are, are, are offended. They're hurling accusations. You know, you hurt us, Paul. You're corrupted. You're all about yourself. You're taking advantage of us. And he says, okay, before Will Smith and the bad boys did, we would live and die with you. My joy has no limit. So how? How do you get responses like that? Okay, show of emoji hands, because that's all you can show me. Uh, that you want that. Like, we want that. Someone at least give me one emoji hand, okay? Jordan, give me the thumbs up when I got it. Just kidding. But, but just imagine Paul, okay? So I was reminded this week, here's a guy. Um, again, I'm just giving you some pastoral reflection on how, how his inner life is responding here, which we all want. That's to be like Jesus. So here's a guy who everywhere he goes, people want to kill him. Right, everywhere he goes, he has, this, he has a crew that literally fasts and says, we're not going to stop eating till we kill him. Everywhere he goes, people want to put him in chains. They want to stone him. They make all these vows. Okay? If you think COVID has an effect on how you travel, this one would be hard. He's got reasons to be very depressed, burnt out, weary, relationally spent, internally a victim, but he writes in prison, for example, rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. I want to know how. Okay, he seems to have found something powerful, hasn't he? Yes, we're all like, yes. Because anyone can rejoice when things are going well. Anyone can when you have joy. But Paul seems to be in this upside-down reality, this kingdom mindset. Paul rejoices to receive joy. It's like, he, it's like he puts truth over them, and then he lives from that place. It's like Paul goes to God in prayer, and he gives them all his emotional angst and stuff, and he receives God's heart for them. He says, I am proud of you. That's an act of the will. That is a spoken future faith in how God's transforming. I am filled with comfort, he says. Like, I'm renewing my mind to take Jesus' thoughts of you. Something happens to our angst towards others when we take Jesus' thoughts of them. Let me say that again. Something begins to happen in our angst towards others when we begin to take Jesus' thoughts of them. I just think this is, you see this all throughout the letter. I don't want to spend too much time here, but one more thing. I want you to notice uh, it's not unreasonable for Paul to be transparent. Like if he felt bruised or hurt, he's not sinning if he tells him. He could easily say, if I'm being honest, I'm angry with you guys. I mean, have you seen all I've done and how you're going to treat me? And, but he chooses a whole different route. I could be wrong, but I think a high value on transparency may look healthy, but isn't always the way of the kingdom. You know, we say it's, it's so valuable. Just be transparent. Just tell them your aunt, you know, and, and I think it can do more damage than the gospel being brought in. Now, I'm not saying, listen, be, I want to be clear here. I'm not saying living uh, in denial is the answer. Is Paul hurt? Oh, you bet. 
I don't think he's faking it. But he's anchoring in a whole other's love in a higher realm of biblical truth. He's taking on God's active love for them. That just blew my mind when I saw that in the text. Anchoring your reactions for others in the presence of Jesus' love for them isn't easy. But as the Mandalorians say, this is the way. Okay? That was for Jordan Chong, who has a podcast, uh, and Tristan Bracewell. That was for you. Paul, though, I mean, just think about this with me. Um, I think what was going on in his heart was chapter 5. I mean, he just came out of saying, for the love of Christ controls us. So how does a deeply loved person react? How does a deeply loved person controlled by the love of Christ react? And I think we have this in this text. It's so beautiful. If you remember, um, again, I want to say transparency when you're really hurting is good. Honesty over denial is good. But what do you need to first bring to Jesus who will exchange what you give him with love? So you can say, this is how I feel about this person. What do I need to bring to you to receive what you feel about this person? If you remember in Matthew 11, he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what I have. I will give you rest. Let's do the exchange. Inner fruit. It was amazing. It just, you know, um, one more connected to this inner fruit was his experience and view of God. You know, Paul's constantly showing us his view of God, the truth of God, who God is. And in this text, you can see uh, one attribute, he's the God who comforts. So look at with me at verse 5, it'll be on the screen as well. But it says, for when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, don't you love all the but gods? But God who comforts the downcast comforted us. You see, he, he does that by sending Titus, but let me just stop there. That's in Paul's inner life, a big God, a God who he knew who he was. He describes the action of God as, 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 as comforting the sad and scared. Fear within the downcast. So maybe I'm, I feel like I'm going a little fast here, but let me slow down and ask you, are you feeling downcast in any way this morning? Fear within, fighting without, downcast. If you are, pull this truth into your life. This is what God is like. This is what he's like. If you're in a trial today, more than likely, there's some form of fear within it. Think about your trial, whatever you're going through, there's some form of fear. There, there's, you know, fear of how this pressure issue or conflict is going to go. Uh, fear of, 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 of it bringing pain. There's fear of loss. Uh, there, there's fear of missing out. There's fear of not being in control. There's fear of not knowing the future, if it goes this way or doesn't go. There's fear. There's, there's fear of not receiving a good thing. There's fear of being misunderstood, not heard. Fear of shame. So here's what trials do. Trials exasperate fear. And fear is, is, is not only debilitating to your faith, it's, it's dislocating to the whole body of Christ. Um, it, it's, it's constantly stirring in your mind. 
And this is where God loves to come in with his comfort. That's exactly where he comes in in Paul's life. He does not know how it's going to turn out. He leaves it completely to God. Titus does something he does not see coming, but it was the God of comfort. And I, you know, I just think we need to thank him for that truth. Like, let's just thank him right now. Like, this, this verse is true. Our God is like this. So thank you, God, that you are a God of comfort. Uh, I, w- I want to show you one text how God in the Old Testament reveals himself in the same way, a God of comfort. And it's interesting how he does it. Uh, Isaiah 51, 12. Listen to what God says. He says, I, even I, or I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass, and have forgotten the Lord your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, and you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy, and where's the wrath of the oppressor? Just stop there. It's really interesting, God's approach to comfort in this passage, right? Because most often when we think of comfort, uh, which is true of God sometimes, uh, we think of like God coming around going, hey, there, there, you know, there, I'm so sorry. Let me just kind of guide you, give you a little bit of, you know, mm, like side hug, and, and I love him. And I, he doesn't do that in this passage. He says, I am the one who comforts you. Have you noticed my size? Have you noticed my size? Or have you forgotten When Jesus says, and it's one of the most repeated commands in Scripture, do not be afraid, we need to remember he's not lobbying correction. He's not like, you know, shame thing. He's like, you guys, what are you doing wrong? You should have, you know, you've blown it again. What he's doing is he's tilting our heads. He's tilting our our minds and our hearts to where he is. Have you noticed my size? What his word says He's, he's opening up to us what is in reach about who God is. That's why Paul had that. You know, um, one of the things I, I come again and again, and I, we emphasize all the time here, is, is reading your Bible, memorizing it, uh, feeling within it who God is, is essential to our faith. You have to know who God is. My wife has been so beautifully encouraging to me. Like, all man, anytime I'm starting to operate in fear, she will, she will remind me what does Scripture say, who God is, how big he is. Um, go back again and again to what does the word say, because the word is active. If he says, so, you know, in 2 Timothy 2, 1, it says, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It's actually true that there's a realm of grace that is accessible in Jesus and I'm able to grab it. So here's one question I've asked in times of trial and fear. Here's the question, God, do you share this same fear over my life? Are you afraid? Do, you, do we have the same fear? And oftentimes it's no. I ask, am I partnering more with this fear or more with my father? It's human to have fear, but when you partner with it, rather than going to the father, that's when it becomes 
sin. And that's when you, and what you need to do is you need to pull God's word in. You gotta pull his character in, his nature. So let me give you just two verses that I often go to with fear. 2 Timothy 1, 7, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, You know, Timothy was going up against all kinds of leadership, doctrinal issues, and he had a lot of fear. But of power and and love and self-control, Hebrews 13, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's true, no matter what. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? He comforts the downcast, those fear within and fear without. There's also, and this is a different sermon, but there's also a compassion in God who comforts us in seasons of pain. I know some of you are there this morning of tragedy where being downcast and being present with you is what the Father is doing. So if that's just seeing the inner responses in life and fruit and and who God is in this passage, let's look at... um, Really, the, the essence of what Paul's saying. Number two, correcting is a necessary love. Correcting is a necessary love. Look with me at verse six. But God, who comforts the downcast, so good, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you guys. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Correcting is a necessary love. I want to read those two verses in a different translation just for the emphasis and then we'll talk about it, okay? So he says this, even if my letter made you sad, I'm not sorry I sent it. At first I was sorry. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Now I'm happy. I'm not happy because you were made sad. I'm happy because your sadness led you to turn away from your sins. You became sad just as God wanted you to. The ESV, for you felt a godly grief. There's a kind of grief God wants us to have. One over our sin. How sin impacts, affects, infects our relational connectivity, our communion with him and others. Grief over how our sin dislocates the community of the church of love that we're called to. So correcting is an act of love in the church. It's an act of love. And the goal, the goal is so clear here, the goal is, is the repentance. The goal when correcting isn't to feel right, like I'm more right than you and I'm more righteous than you. And the goal in correcting isn't to use your goodness to show how others are not. Biblical correction seeks the ultimate spiritual welfare of a person no matter how you feel, no matter how peaceful it comes across, to ignore sin, to minimize it in the name of love is not only unbiblical, it also betrays the very nature of love itself. People say, well, it's not loving to, to say that this isn't good or this isn't true or this. Sometimes it is. 
Confrontation is hard, and we typically prefer finding a way to avoid it, but what does that say about you, and, and who is this about? Now, let me say this. Having humility, genuine grace, coming to someone clothed and ready to extend the blood of Jesus, making sure that you're ready to be present with them, and saying, I'm, I'm hungry to journey with you, by the way, knowing there's a reason why that sin is. There's a reason there's a sin in someone's life. And, and, and coming, I love you. Yes, we need that. But, but look, at, look right at me because I guess you all are. Um, love says something. Love corrects. Uh, we, need, we need a culture of correcting. But a culture of correcting on, on sin um, you know, you always hear like, don't be the, uh, the Bible police or like, you know, you hear those kind of phrases and man, I get that. But once in a while you might have to risk coming across like a Bible police and, and you might risk someone going, that wasn't loving, but the Holy Spirit knows your heart. Correction is a necessary love. Parents, all parents who are listening to this are going, Ah, uh, yeah. Whether your child throws a tantrum or not isn't up to you. You've got to correct. I felt really strongly here, by the way, when I was studying, uh, to say men. So if you're men in here and you're like me, you know, make, maybe you're making yourself a latte, come over here, come to the screen for a second. Um, I felt the Lord want me to say, let your wife speak. Let your wife speak. Uh, give her permission and space without defending, trusting. Give her space, trusting that she loves you to correct attitudes, actions, sins of omission where you should be doing something and you're not. Give her space to do that. We, we are slow to do that. We, we are slow. We don't want to do that because we don't, want, we don't like when our ego is, is hit. Uh, and so the reason you don't want to hear the loving voice of Jesus through your wife's voice isn't because her tone can carry some uh, unpleasantness. It's because you have an ego rooted in fear that you're not going to make it. You have a fear that deep down you will feel failure again. And you are terrified to feel that feeling. And so it's, it's defenses are up. But let me say this, this is what I think was from the Lord. I think the Father is growing and trying to reroute an ego that's found in him. Maybe the Father is wanting that ego to die. And the only way it'll die is if you actually look at it the way God sees it. And so you gotta let her speak, okay? You gotta let her speak. The only way you'll be surrendered to God and know him as Father is if you uh, are replacing that ego with his love. So correcting is a necessary love. So let me ask you this question, sure. Are you correctable? Like, can people correct you? Can, can you know, um, like, what's your first thought when you can tell someone's about to correct me? And is it, is it this painful triggering maybe of how you were hurt by correction or maybe the way, you know, your father corrected you was actually abusive, it wasn't helpful or healing? Whatever it is, walls go up. Some of you, it's immediate bitterness, okay? I get that. I think everyone is going, mm-hmm. That's not unique to your experience, but I, 
what you need to do is you need to bring that to God and say, that's not necessarily true of this person and how they feel about me. Because there's a lie. You have to, what is true about why I'm feeling this lie? You have to go there because the scripture's primary, like, you know, um, breath and, and, and sanctification life is, is you see this in, in uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God. It's as if God is speaking and it's profitable for, for teaching and, and building how we think and love and listen and follow Jesus. But listen, what else? For reproof. And then what's our word? For correction. Paul's rejoicing was in the fruit, not not the process. The process can be painful. Uh, you know, I just personally, I have so much to grow in this, and I'm trying to grow and growing by God's help. But So here's the third question. I'm, I don't know how we're doing for time because it doesn't matter right now. How do you, or how do we become softer? How do we receive correction? You know, if there's some blocks in you around collection, what does this passage say is the goal of it when we're confronting on sin? Um, well, I think we need to have the fruit and the effects that we see in this passage. So look with me at verse 10. So how to receive correction and truly change. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Okay, let's sit there for a little bit. Notice here, two kinds of griefs. What do we have? We have godly grief, or more literally, according to God, agreeable to the mind of God, a sorrow prompted by the conviction that their sin had offended God. You think, think Psalm 51, 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It's interesting, the word salvation in our passage is not used in a theological sense. It's actually used in a bad situation sense. He, he's saying a sincere sorrow that is vertical will lead to a, a, a saving way of changing the circumstance uh, to a new heart and behavior that will end and have no regret because it's coming to the cross. It will, it will end without any bad feelings left over. It'll end with, with what Christ is doing. It'll end with, I'm forgiven and accepted with the Father. Let me ask you this, when, when uh, you're corrected and you feel a sense of sorrow on sin, do you go, oh God, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry, God. Ah, man, I just, I'm so sorry, I just wanna sit with you now. Or is it like just two hours in your head of, okay, how will I say this to this person? And I, I need to minimize this because was that really true? And I gotta guard myself here because I don't wanna look so bad. What about my people at work? And I wanna cover myself. Is it, just, oh, you know what? It was actually their fault. Blame See, worldly sorrow is more sad for getting caught. It, it's essentially self-pity. It, it's feeling sick because you made uh, you lose people's admiration of you. So you feel sick about it. If you have worldly sorrow, you allow it to brew. Here's what will happen. You will always, always take criticism badly because you'll, you're so self-interested in how you come across and you will take on an offense that was never meant to hurt. Never meant to hurt. Did it go dark for you guys or just me? Some of us 
you know, including yours truly, I can look at my life where I've taken offenses too much that were never meant to hurt. Anybody? That's worldly sorrow. I mean, some of it's misunderstanding, and you got to clear that up, but, but by the way, you're never pleasant to be around, just so you know, if that's you. If that marks you. You can never take criticism. You're usually not really pleasant to be around. Um, so just, you know, so you're some self-aware. If, if you find yourself almost every time being corrected, there's some form of hurt festering and growing in you to the point where uh, just it infects everything you do, like you're up at night, and you're constantly going, I was hurt, I was hurt, I was hurt. It may be worldly sorrow. I'm not saying it's, you shouldn't feel hurt when you're hurt. But we're not talking about being hurt. We're talking about being corrected. And so if you were corrected for sin in your life, and that just, you know, you're spinning with how to not come into the cross, not getting to repentance, and not being resolved, that you got to take that serious. Because listen, listen, you need to get that out. There's one character in the Bible who, who was so sorrowful, but he let sorrow eat him with such regret and self-destruction. Do you know who that was? Judas. Judas. He was excessively sorrow, the Bible says. He gave all the money back that he betrayed Jesus, but it was worldly. Let me say this, when you're being corrected, it's not the same as accusation. Accusation is after condemnation. The demonic realm waits for correction. They, they wait for it. The demonic realm is just ready and, and just ready to pounce and ready to accuse and, and self-introspect and, and gets you not on the cross. Correction is about restoration receiving new life. It's coming out of death to take hold of what's exciting, what's yours in Jesus. Uh, a real correction is like, what does Jesus now want me to say and do and, and be different and with his help? It's the Father, listen, listen, it's the Father getting something he sees and his heart is broken over out. He's like, surrender that, this breaks my heart. That's what the goal of correction is. You're covered in my blood and now you can have salvation without any regret and, and walk in my spirit. So what do you want to see in your heart? What are you after? So if you're like, man, next time I'm called out on my sin, right? what, am, what is my goal? So here's the effects of godly sorrow and you're going to unpack these more in your community group because we are running out of time. Um, but the first thing he says um, is earnestness. Earnestness. He says, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, or eagerness to clear yourselves. He's like, to make it right, to vindicate the wrong. He says, what indignation, what fear, what longing. You just see this inward alarm. You know, one commentator said they were kicking themselves for the way they hurt Paul. What zeal, what punishment. That word can be translated justice. You're, just, you're ready to make sure that the right things are done. This is not, you know, how do, you know, this is not about making it about you. This is about making it right with others. A godly sorrow comes from a place where you know you're loved and you want to just see what God wants to do in this situation. And you, you want to be different. You want to change. And, and listen to what he says next, and we'll close here. This is verse 12. It'll be on the screen. So he says, so although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, 
nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong. Here's why he wrote, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. He said, he's, he's saying, I wrote so that you could see for yourselves how faithful you are to us in the sight of God. It's amazing, such an amazing end goal. Lastly, what he does is he commends them for how Titus was received, how they lifted his spirits. You can see how when correction is responded to, produces community that cares. All of a sudden, Titus comes in, and they're going, man, we messed up. Titus is like, what? Really? You guys are repenting? This is exciting. Right? Look at, look at, the, look at the Bible. He, for whoever boasts, for whatever boasts I made to him about you, isn't that cool? Paul boasts to Titus about them. I was not put to shame, but just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus proved true, and his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. That's the passion and heart, or ought to be the passion and heart of every leader that loves his church, loves Jesus' church. I don't know how God's speaking to you this morning, but I, I know he is. So as we go into a time of response and we sing and we're going to pray, I encourage you to bring that specific thing in, into a journal um, or, or into your phone and your notes. Let me pray. Father, I just I thank you for your word. I thank you for the example of Paul, as he even says, follow me as I follow Christ. It's just so challenging. His responses and, and his inner life, just how he loved, how he just, he saw how you viewed them. He didn't take the offense. He, the gospel in him was just rose above it. So he could just speak over them. And he could see I'm proud of them. And I just, I pray we would have that for one another. And I just, I ask God that, that the correcting love of the church would just be a part of the culture and life of, of the shore and of believers. And, and receiving correction is such an act of your help and grace. So if anyone now is in a season of correction, if there was anything specific to any husbands in particular, would you grow that fruit in Jesus' name? And anything that is of the enemy, maybe there's an accusing voice that wants to just stir up guilt and you're not good enough. And see, that's not from the Father. We just cut that off now. And I just pray that there'd be just a, a gripping of the cross of Christ now and a this is who I am. This is where my identity is. I'm deeply loved. So I pray that as deeply loved children, of the king, we would now respond in repentance, in worship, in, in communion, in giving, in all of the things that you're calling us to respond now in the name of Jesus Christ.